All right, I just got off the phone with Pete Ray, coach at Zap Endurance. Um, Pete was a lot of fun to talk to. He packed in so much practical advice, and when you hear it, it sounds like common sense, but then you realize you wouldn't have come up with it on your own. It's just that he presents it in such a digestible way. Um, so that was really good. That and he gives off such a positive vibe that talking to him made me want to go train for a marathon, which I might do. We'll see. Um, but before I play back the interview, I wanted to read through some of his bio since we didn't cover much of it in our conversation. Um, and this information is straight off the Zap website. So since 2002, Pete Ray has been elite athlete coach at Zap Endurance Team USA Training Center in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. He's coached over three dozen Olympic trials qualifiers from 1,500 meters to the marathon. He's had six athletes qualify for the world cross-country team, and in 2014, his athlete Tyler Pinnell was the winner of the USATF Marathon Championship. The Zap Endurance men have also won the USATF Club Cross-Country Championships uh, in 2006, 2007, 2009, and 2014. Pete ran for the University of Connecticut, where he graduated in 1992 as an all-Big East Conference cross-country selection. While working on his master's degree, he ran for Team Nike South and began coaching local Atlanta high school athletes and open men and women. Pete is senior columnist for the New England Running Magazine and a contributing editor for Active.com. So here is my interview with Pete Ray. Mr. Pete Ray, thank you for taking time to speak with me today. You're welcome. All right, well, let's dive in here. We're here to talk about marathon training. So uh, as a coach, has your approach to marathon training changed in any significant way since you've been a coach? Uh, I, I would say yes, uh, unequivocally. Uh, I'd say that the um, principles on which I was taught uh, marathon prep uh, back to when, <laughs> frankly, I was a high school athlete and a, and a, and a collegiate distance runner. Um, the people who were the greatest influences on me um, and people I spent time with, in, especially in the summers when I was growing up, those principles still apply. But I'd say that they've been uh, tweaked and modified, and um, you know, you, you put your own special sauce on on everything, uh, and it's really just kind of tricks of the trade, like so many coaches I've learned throughout the years. So same basic structure, but it's uh, it has indeed evolved. Is there anything about your training program now that you put your marathoners through that you would say is maybe? Uh, seen as unconventional or, or maybe just unique or different than some other elites that you see out there? Um, I, I would say maybe maybe the only real thing that we do that I am unaware if many other coaches do around the country, and there, there, there may be some, but uh, none of whom I'm aware of, we, we do a lot of, a lot of surging in our long runs. So, um, you know, for us, a typical marathon block is um, usually about 11 weeks, 11 weeks of prep of uh, specificity. And we run on 10 day weeks rather than seven day weeks, which a lot of groups do. Um, but our long runs involve a lot of gear changing. We're almost never running the same pace in a long run start to finish. Um, but even rather than just the natural progression of a pace of a long run that most coaches use, we do a lot of overt surging. So for example, the simplest, uh, the simplest version would be when we're 10 or 11 weeks out from a marathon, we might do something as simple as a 22-mile run, and we'll do a one-minute pickup or a one-minute surge every nine or 10 minutes for the last hour and a half. So you, you might do nine or 10 pickups total throughout the run. Um, and, you know, you do a surge, and then you go back to your normal uh, marathon rhythm run between the surge and then, you know, nine or 10 minutes later, you do another one minute surge. And then nine or 10 minutes later, you do another one minute surge. 
And then if you fast forward, say, six to eight weeks, and now you're getting closer and closer to the marathon, those surges might be, uh, these are minutes, uh, a one, a one, a three, a one, a nine, a one, a five, a one, and a one. Um, so now you've got surges that are close to two miles long. Uh, and th- those were um, those sur- surges, and I call them squires surges because those were taught to me by the man I believe is the greatest marathon coach in U.S. history, Bill Squires, and he's still living, uh, greater Boston track club coach from the 70s and 80s, and who's Bill Rogers' coach and Dick Beardsley's coach and so many others. That was a staple for him. You, there was never consistency of tempo in long runs. There, were, there was always gear changing and then returning to pace, gear changing and returning to pace. So we do a lot of that. Do the intensity of these pickups change during a long run or even during the course of a cycle? Yes and yes. So early in the marathon uh, cycle, which for us tends to be less than three months, um, the surges are more moderate, uh, more contained, uh, and, and, and obviously they should be as well because you're not as fit three weeks, three months out from a marathon as you would be three weeks from a marathon. Um, but they are quicker at the tail end of the run than they are at the beginning of the run. And then as the, um, as the marathon long runs continue and get closer to the, uh, the actual race, the surges become more intense. They become occasionally longer. And then as well, um, the pace between those surges also tends to be, uh, tends to be faster. Okay. And are those types of long runs basically your staple marathon workouts or are there any other separate, well, you know, marathon specific workouts that are kind of must haves in the weeks leading up? Right. So, um, you know, you know, you asked me, your first question was asking me about, you know, the things that have changed or the things I've learned. And uh, one of the things I've learned, particularly if you're coaching people who are talented, uh, you know, um, cause your genetics do matter. Um, that I, I found that even amongst pros, most people um, t- tend to actually overcook mar- marathon prep, which is one of the reasons we only do 10 to 11 weeks. It's really, if you're in good shape going in, uh, you, don't, you don't need 14, 16, 18 weeks. Um, but um, so the truth is, we don't tend to work out all that often. So, you know, every 10 days, we tend to do a long run. We do a medium long run. Uh, we do some form of interval session and then some form of progressive tempo run or fartlek. So that's four things of intensity in 10 days. And then the, the remainder is just, is just volume. Um, and that volume, how much of that volume is depends really on the individual. Cause everybody's a different, a different, uh, a different athlete. Um, but as far as staple workouts, f- the ones we've used, um, yes, we've got a handful, um, you know, one of the the sessions that we do a few times in the buildup is a long progressive fartlek we do where you do surges of eight minutes, seven minutes, six, five, four, three, two, one with half the time um, of recovery after you just ran. So you do that session and, you know, you're, you're looking at it over 50, five, zero minutes uh, of running with the recovery only being 30 to 35 seconds per mile slower than the pickup you just did. And we start the eights near half marathon rhythm. So it's not slow. And we try to get down to essentially 5k rhythm for the two and the one. Um, so you're, com- you're combining energy systems there. And, and, and what's amazing about that session is I've had athletes go through, um, and run darn near close to their 10 mile PR en route. Um, even with, even with the floats. Um, so that's, you know, that's one. And then one of our marathon specific long runs that we'll do once, sometimes twice, depending on the individual, but once usually three and a half weeks out from a marathon is we'll do a 20, 21 mile run and we will do, these are uh, long pieces. We'll do a five mile surge with a mile float, a four mile surge with a mile float, a three mile surge with a mile float, and then a hard one mile, five, one, four, one, three, one, one. And that's 15 miles. Um, and the goal in that 15 is to roughly average, including the recovery, average what you're going to, what we're targeting on marathon day, less than a month later. Just, just a second ago, you mentioned that if you're in good shape going in, you don't need, you know, 14, 16 weeks. Yeah. So when you're looking at the larger macro cycles for your athletes, 
you know, if it's only an 11 week buildup for a race, that leaves a lot of time throughout the rest of the year, even if you're doing two marathons a year. So yep. I get, it sounds like it's not just one marathon cycle rest, another marathon cycle. So are you in between these 11 week cycles, are you focusing on shorter distances or is it some kind of general fitness program or what do you do in the in-between times throughout the year? Right. So, you know, one of the best pieces of advice, pieces of advice I ever received in uh, working with distance runners was from, um, you know, arguably the greatest long distance, American long distance runner ever, Bill Rogers, you know, four-time winner of Boston, four-time winner in New York, Olympian. Um, and he said, just make sure, even for the people who are true marathoners, that you always go back to basics. And I said, well, what are, what are basics? And he said, well, your basics are track and cross country, um, or at a minimum, road running in cross country. Um, because too often, and this is not just for pros or for highly competitive people, but even for age group runners, uh, people start marathoning and then that's all they do. They just marathon. And that if performance is the goal, and I'm sure, uh, you, you have some people who listen to your podcast for whom maybe fitness is the only goal. Um, but for those who are thinking performance, you need to work different energy systems and cross country and shorter road running. When I say shorter, I mean, you know, five and 10 K running, running some eight Ks running, you know, maybe you pick a 10 mile race. You're going to target, um, where perhaps you do a little bit more work on your, um, on oxygen consumption, maybe you're working on your VO2 a little bit more. Uh, maybe you're going to work on power and efficiency and economy and, and do some more hill work. All those things that marathoners tend to spend less time doing for obvious reasons, we go back to those things. Um, and then the other answer is, yeah, two 11 to 12 week buildups, which is, you know, you're right. It's less than half the year. Um, usually the first four weeks after that marathon is, um, is recovery uh, again, real recovery. Uh, so if you do two four week recoveries, now you're talking about 24 weeks plus eight. Now you're talking about 32 weeks. And you know, what are you doing with the remaining 20 weeks? And that's where you can focus on some other races. You mentioned efficiency and something that's come up in my first two episodes is the fact yeah. that Frank, Sh Frank Shorter's VO two max mm. yeah. relatively to other elites was pretty low. Low seventies, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I don't know exact figure, but um, yeah. you know, when they did the the study down at Kenneth Cooper's Institute in Dallas, uh, compared to like Prefontaine and Kenny Moore and <laughs> others, it was strikingly lower uh, to you know compared to theirs. But yet, he was an Olympic gold medalist, right. um, and it's kind of attributed to his efficiency and how smooth he was. So. Can you describe things you guys do specifically to work on efficiency for your marathoners? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked about that because um, uh, for, for a minute, I'd, I'd like to just be, be Darwinian here, which is, you know, one of the best ways to improve biomechanical efficiency is simply to run more uh, because, um, you know, Renato Canova once, once, once said, two things are going to happen when you run more you're going to get more efficient or you're going to get hurt. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, as, as we run more, your body uh, figures out how to become more efficient. Um, you know, you, when you see athletes, when they first start running and come out of high school, you've seen them, Joe, I mean, kids who can probably grab the rim on a basketball goal, but after they've been running for 10 or 12 years, you know, they can hardly touch the net. Um, we become, we, we tend to become more efficient, but the other thing in terms of pure mechanical efficiency I really love hills. And when I say hills, I mean three ways. I mean, not just shorter, steeper, more powerful hills. Uh, and you're talking about muscle recruitment there also. Longer hill intervals, you know, intervals of two and a half, three and a half, even five minute intervals, um, more tempo based uphill intervals. And then lastly, which we can do here so well in the mountains is long sustained uphill runs. Um, is a great way. I'll have athletes do as few as six or eight long sustained uphill tempo runs. And we can run seven miles here uphill without a break in just in this park. Um, and you'll, you'll notice within months of new athletes arriving, their um, repetition of foot strike goes, is higher. There's not as much wasted vertical motion. You know, you've seen those athletes who look like pogo sticks off their feet. Um, they're, um, uh, 
their ground contact time goes down. Um, it's really, it's really neat. So hills, I really feel uh, they're not only nature's weight work, as Lydiard said, but they're also mm-hmm. great ways to improve efficiency. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the idea of just doing more of something, yeah. you know, forces you to adapt to it. So I, I actually wanted to ask you this specific question because there's, there's clearly, um, and this is a little bit of overgeneralization, but there's definitely two schools of thought that you hear out there. Yep. And one is kind of the get the biggest bang for your buck in your training, focus on the key workouts, and then just recover in between. And the thought there is like overall volume is kind of more of a byproduct, doesn't necessarily drive your fitness, kind of like less is more mentality. Um, (laughs) And on the other hand, I've heard people literally say, you know, if, and I know this may vary from runner to runner, but say you're a 19 minute 5k Yep. runner and you want to get to 17 minutes you probably just need to run more and that's it you know right. yeah. um as you get faster and faster the workouts become more important but at a certain level just running more is what you need so what do you think about that at what point does just more volume stop giving the benefits look i, I um it's 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 a, this is a controversial topic in 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 some respects because especially when you're talking about you know you just mentioned the you know the 19 minute person trying to run 17 minute person and I think about the high school athletes I used to coach and you're right for those athletes heck almost everybody just improves from their freshman year to their senior year just by running a little bit more right or hey go run in the summer for the first time and you're going to improve and and then you know you automatically think you're this great coach because your kids are improving but <laughs> um but but look mileage matters. Um, I tend to fall into the category of, of someone who believes that even for, for younger athletes, um, spending a little bit more time on your feet, not necessarily time on your feet of intensity, but just healthy aerobic conversation pace time in the woods, um, to provide a platform from which you can pull for years to come is really, 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 really important. And frankly, uh, I just had a just had a great online coaching discussion with some other coaches about this. We got away from that in the late eighties and into the nineties. I mean, it was our, it was our worst decade uh, in recent decades of us distance running. We were really poor in terms of our depth from about 87, 88 uh, into the early two thousands. And the reason was, and I, and I say that not just on the high school level, our depth was poor. Um, we had some amazing superstars, don't get me wrong, but I mean, in terms of like, you know, hey, what was the 20th ranked whatever? On the collegiate level, we were not nearly as deep. And then, of course, even on the pro level, my God, if you take a look at where our 30th fastest person was in a year like 1983 and compare that to the year 2000, it is jaw-dropping, and it's because we ran less. We ran less in the 90s. So when you're trying to take somebody who's um, never really – run significant volumes before yep. and you're trying to increase their volume over, you know, assuming it's done safely and gradually and all that. Sure. Do you, do you like to increase the overall volume at using a greater percentage of easy running first and then fill in later than the quality or do you kind of bring both along at the same time? Uh, yeah. So I don't, if I'm working with an athlete who's you know, perhaps truly developmental or more of a beginner. And I'm sure some of your podcast listeners are maybe, are maybe people just getting started. Um, I want to be clear. The term high volume is very much a relative term. I mean, sure. you might have someone who's running 12 to, 12 to 15 miles a week. And for them, the goal might be, hey, let's, let's see if this next year we can average 20, right? Um, and then the following year, let's, let's see if we can bump you um, 15 to 20%, see if we can average 25 to 28 for a year. Uh, you see a lot of coaches just say, well, hey, everybody should run 60 to 80 miles a week from the, from the, you're right out the barn door. And those, those people get hurt all the time <laughs> or they have yeah. one great year and then, and then they're screwed. Um, so, but yes, usually it's bringing them along with, uh, more easy running necessarily than intensity. Although the, 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 the tempo runs, the hill repetition sessions, the fartlek, as years go on, the volume of those sessions will grow as well. Where I think is something that is lost on a lot of athletes and their coaches is making sure that you plan rest. Um, not only planning rest within every given week, 
Um, for us, we use 10 day weeks and there's always one really big dip day. It might be an off day. It might be a day where they, o- they only run a few miles. Uh, making sure that there's a pullback in every training cycle. So like even in a marathon preparation, 10 weeks, we, al- we have like one big three to four day window in that 10 weeks where we pull way the heck back. And then in a, in a big macro look, making sure that there's rest in a given year too. Like, you know, you just trained for whatever your key race was, you know, maybe it was the Reedy River Run in Greenville and that was your big target race. And hey, these next nine days, all we're going to do is jog 20 minutes every other day for the next 10 days. If you plan rest, then you can you can keep upping your volume for years to come. So when you have a, a, a race on the calendar, you know, yep. say it's six months away or whatever. Yep. Um, and this could apply to anybody, you know, an absolute beginner or one of your athletes. How do you look at, what do you think about goal pace workouts versus either effort base or um, just kind of starting wherever you are and just incrementally improving and just see where it ends up and not necessarily worry about a goal pace at all? Like, it seems like you can either start with a goal in mind and work backwards or kind of start where you are and just keep improving. And not that you necessarily have to choose distinctly between those two, but it seems like you can use a goal pace or you can not worry about the pace and just, you know, kind of take it one week at a time. I guess the answer to that would be it it depends on the type of athlete. If the the athletes I coach who run for a living, we set concrete goals uh, and they are um, performance-based, outcome-based goals. Um, You know, for example, at the Olympic trials, you know, Tyler Pennell, his first goal is he said, Hey, I'd really like to, I'd like to, my A tier goal is sub 212. My B tier goal is sub 213. And I'd like to be in the top 10. And he ran 212 and he was 11th. So, you know, he got one, he got one of them. Um, right. But I will say, I also coach a few athletes who were beginners. And when I say beginners, I mean they're in their first couple of years of running. For them, figuring out what to target um, because they don't have a years of race history. Some of it comes down to, I'll say, hey, let's run four one-mile repeats with three minutes rest, and I want you to run it at um, short conversation pace. Because I use I use perceived effort a lot uh, rather than I'll say, hey, uh, mm-hmm. this should be – you should be able to hold a short conversation with your training partner, Frank. Um, and if, if um, Tara or somebody comes back to me and says, yeah, I ran four one-mile repeats in 720 – um, with the, with the prescribed recovery and it was conversation pace and I could have done one or two more if you asked me to. Okay. Now I've got a pretty good idea of what I think we should, we should be targeting in six weeks for your 10 K. Um, so some of them are more the, let's get started. One of your categories you mentioned, see how the workouts play along and then we'll pick a goal. And then some of them for athletes who are more experienced, the goal is, uh, front and center from the time we start training for a race. Yeah, that's such a great example of uh, Tyler. And, you know, you hear this a lot, like if you if you write down your goals, if you verbalize them, if you define them at all, <laughs> you're more likely to actually reach it. Yeah. And on the other hand, though, personally, I, I kind of get a little freaked out with goals, not because I'm I'm afraid I'll miss the target or something, yep. but almost like I don't want to shortchange myself. Maybe I'm too yeah. much of an optimist. Like I don't want to say I can run 212 because – then I'll have 212 in my head, but maybe I was capable of running like 210. You know what I yeah. mean? What Do you think there's a risk of that at all? 100%. In fact, uh, and, and I know obviously you've run, um, you were a high school athlete, you were a, a collegiate uh, distance runner. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so highly competitive people, right. You know, you, know, you don't want to ever limit them. And as a coach, you have to walk that fine line. I also don't want to, you know, if Tyler came to me before the Olympic trials and said, do you think running 207 today is reasonable? I, I would have been lying to him if I, if I said, yeah, I think that's a reasonable goal on this course. Um, right. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm always honest with the athletes with whom I'm fortunate to work. But, um, but also, uh, this might blow your mind, Joe, but I've actually found that, if anything, athletes tend to sell themselves short a little bit. Uh, like you said, you don't want to limit yourself, but I find myself time and time again, uh, the best example I can give, one of our current pros on the team, Matt McClintock, uh, who went to Purdue. I mean, you know, his first fall here, right, right out of the big 10 conference, he had been training eight weeks here and I sent him up to the U S 10 mile championships in Minneapolis. 
And he said, you know, I really, I really think if I run well, I, I think I can run under 49 minutes. And I said, I think you're out of your mind, Matt. <laughs> I said, based on what you've done, I think 4730 is very reasonable. And you could, the look on his face was like, are you, out of, you know, are you kidding me? I mean, that's four forty somethings, right? Um, and, um, you know, he ran 4740. So um, oh. I, I find that if anything, athletes are almost uh, uh, sell themselves short so they can see success. <laughs> right. Kind of under promise, over deliver sort of thing. Yeah. All right. So in the marathon, everybody knows that uh, if you run out of glycogen, you're kind of toast, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how do you guys work in, and I, I assume, I don't know, I, I'm assuming you guys train with the fuel you're going to use during a marathon. Is that accurate? Yeah. Uh, and that's an area, a real area of problem. Uh, even here, we've had problems with athletes finding, uh, I'm sure your listeners, the ones who train for marathons who like to practice during their long runs and maybe their medium long runs too with carbohydrate. So their stomach can get used to, um, uh, different quantities, uh, as, as well as, you know, what they're mixing it with all those things. Uh, we struggle every marathon cycle with at least one athlete who's like, man, I'm just trying to find the right thing for my tummy to absorb on long runs. But, but yes, Joe, we practice with it. Um, you know, we, we tend to stick across the board with, um, um, Toshiko Seiko who works for the Japanese national federation. And he was, you know, world number one marathoner a few decades ago. Um, we tend to stick with that classic every 30 to 35 minutes, you know, trying to look at somewhere between a uh, 100 and 130 calories tends to be where we have le the least issues and plenty of energy to, to close after two hours. Um, but we practice with it, which you have to, you have to do. You said uh, how many calories? Uh, anywhere from about a hundred, you know, 80 on the light side, 125, 130 on the high side, roughly about every half an hour. And that's starting like 30 minutes into the marathon? Actually, no, starting before the gun goes off. So um, I, I had some really good advice from Dr. Michael Saunders, who's the head of exercise physiology at James Madison University, um, a Canadian researcher. And he said, look, one of the mistakes that we make is that we wait until the gas tank starts to empty before we, we refill it. Mm. Top it off with an extra 100 calories within minutes of the gun going off. So mm. we'll commonly in the warm up area and, you know, you don't warm up a whole heck of a lot for, a right. um, but you do, you warm up a little uh, is in that warm up routine before you get your flats on and go to the starting line that you're actually taking something in pre gun. So um, we've experimented, experimented with that um, even more, which is, is perhaps a little foreign to people in marathon prep, but something worth trying for your listeners. So sounds like you guys have, you know, obviously you're pros. I mean, you've kind of got this down to a science and have a plan. Um, so has, have any of your athletes ever, you know, is actually hitting the wall during a marathon that much of a concern since you've kind of got the fueling figured out long in advance or is it, or do you have it figured out so you don't even worry about it? No, I, I worry about it. Uh, so, um, <laughs> I, we, and I, we've seen everything uh, across the spectrum. Um, and, and the best example I can give is the 2016 Olympic trials where, um, you know, uh, we thought Tyler Pennell had a real shot at making the team. Um, he took the lead at 16 miles, which um, was probably, probably a little too soon and, you know, was forcing the tempo right up through 19, 20 miles and then utterly imploded. Um, and, not only was it a hot day in LA, um, I mean, he finished fifth. Don't get me wrong. He ran a good race, mm -hmm. but, um, looking back the amount of, the amount of, um, carbohydrate that he had taken in and just general fluids for dehydration, uh, was not enough for that day. So yeah, you, you, you make mistakes and, um, uh, I've made plenty as a coach and we've had, um, I can count on my hand, uh, in the last five to seven years, you know, four or five athletes who have, um, not fueled properly uh, and have really struggled over the course of those last, those critical last 20 minutes of a marathon. Right. So there's two sides of this coin here, right? There's, there's fueling correctly. Like you just yep. mentioned, then there's also the training you can do to become more efficient in burning fat at higher intensities. Yep. 
Um, and I'm thinking about training for a marathon. And I, this is something I'm trying to figure out. And I, I ask everybody is if obviously, like you've described, you want to train with the fuels that you plan to use and make sure your gut can handle them. Um, so yep. there's no surprises. But at the same time, it seems like you also want to teach your body to be able to, to use a higher percentage of fats at higher intensities. Um, so when you're, my question is, when you're training with fuel, yep. you know, during your long runs, are you foregoing any sort of fat adaptation? Like, do those, those, do those things work against each other, do you think? I would say a little bit. Uh, it's really interesting that you bring up what you just brought up because if you talk to a lot of the really good old school, old school marathoners from that great American marathon generation from the late seventies, early eighties window, right? Uh, and to give you perspective, I mean, Pete Fitzinger, who won the 84 Olympic trials, uh, he became the first American to beat Alberto Salazar that day when he won the trials in 84. Um, I mean, you talk to those guys and he was my, my mentor in college and after, um, they commonly would do at least a few of their longer long runs. Um, you know, yesterday we had Josh Izuski here, one of our athletes run a 25 mile long run and all he took was water. Um, to your point, uh, teaching the body to be more efficient in its utilization of, of fat, but it's a little more difficult to recover from those runs. You know, um, you, the athletes who are able to take some carbohydrate during the run. Um, I find that they recover more, more quickly. They feel better the next day. Um, the former example is not without merit. Um, but more of the old school guys did that. They, they would say, Hey, look, we're going to do some 22, 24, even over distance runs like 28 and 20, 27 and 28 miles with our, with our carbohydrate to te teach our body, um, how to use, um, fat as fuel. Uh, and, uh, we tend to see it a little bit less now. So I, yeah. I, I, if, if I had to choose one or the other, I would say that I, I would choose the practice with the fueling more often simply from a recovery standpoint. Sure. So that long run, you mentioned that, uh, your athlete Josh did, um, with just water 25 or so miles, um, was, did that have your, the squire surges in it or was it just a long, easy run? And was the goal to literally run out of fuel and see what that feels like? What was the idea there? Uh, based on how he finished, I would say, uh, he, uh, did a good job of keeping, keeping it, uh, keeping that run across the board under 80% effort. And, uh, but yeah, just, just water. He did do squire surges, but he did the first one I, I mentioned to you. He did the simple squire surge early marathon prep, he did one minute surges every eight minutes for the last 94 minutes of the run. Um, and, uh, the run was not a hard run. Uh, it was, he finished the run to give you perspective. He finished the run about a minute per mile slower than his goal marathon pace. And he did the surges, um, uh, at marathon pace for the first half of them. And then half marathon pace for the second half of them. Hmm. So not the surges themselves weren't even all that fast. Sure. Sure. Um, so is that something without, you know, just using water in a long run like that, yep. is that something you would only do once during an entire cycle or how often would you do that? Yeah. Once or twice. Um, yeah. and then, um, I would say even within, um, uh, just again, this is just more of a piece of coaching advice for your clients, uh, your sure. for the people listening is, Another area that people tend to forego is backing up long runs with a medium long run. So I see a lot of folks who come to our summer adult camps, and these are runners of every age and every ability, and they'll say, well, you know, I trained for a marathon. I did a 20-mile long run uh, every week, and my next longest run was six. <laughs> um, making sure that you have a, a – have a so if your longest run of the week is maybe 17 for that week, make sure you have a, a 12 or a 13 to back it up. If you've got a 21 or a 22, make sure you've got a 16 or a 17 to back it up. Mm. Um, having a good medium long run, and that medium long run is also can be used um, – even if it's just for tummy practice, um, that mm. medium long run can be a good one to say, hey, you know what, I, I've been struggling with uh, – goo, uh, you know, I, I'm going to try hammer gel or whatever you're experimenting with. Um, maybe you're trying gen, you can, um, you can say the medium long run is going to be one in which I can practice the drinking because you should mm. practice drinking. Some people just struggle with swallowing while they're running. 
Right. So besides tummy practice, what's the specific adaptation you're going for in the medium long run after the, you know, after the real long run? Yeah, I mean, if I'm being completely honest, the science behind the medium long run specifically, I I really can't back it up any more than um, it's just another good, solid um, aerobic run. Or for us, our medium long run is almost always an anaerobic threshold stimulator, something where we're we're running, you know, 85 to 88% of max heart rate for either broken intervals or something sustained. Um, yeah. One of our one of our favorite workouts that we actually were doing it this Friday with three of our guys is we'll do um, two two 2K repeats, four 1K repeats, three 2K repeats. So that's 14 kilometers worth of intervals with short recovery. And then we do it on the grass <laughs> um, to, to work on stabilization of our feet a little bit. And, you know, we run those, you know, those are starting them a little bit slower than half marathon rhythm and finishing a little faster than half marathon rhythm uh, on relatively short rest. And with warm up and cool down, heck, that's 16 miles. Here's something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, do you guys pay much attention to body weight throughout the season? Um, yeah, I, I would I would say most of the athletes here um, will be aware of where their weight is in relation to where it has been in past training cycles. So, you know, again, um, you don't see huge fluctuations, uh, some athletes more than others, but you know, when you take a break, my hope would be that an athlete would gain a few pounds, uh, you know, when they're not in intense training and, um, when you, when you cut back on your volume, obviously you're, you, you tend to, um, tack on three to five pounds, but, uh, as they get, closer and closer to peak race days, uh, almost all of them are aware of where their weight is in relation to previous um, peak peak training cycles. Okay. But yeah, at the same time, I'm definitely not the coach who's standing in the weight room weighing them because I, I you know, distance runners by nature are real type A folks. And um, it, maybe I shouldn't say it goes without saying, maybe it needs to be said more often, but, you know, <laughs> Eating disorders within our sport, men and women, uh, are common, and often it's the coaches who are um, overly sensitive to athletes' weight that can actually cause those things, uh, can cause those problems. Right. So at this level, anyway, most of the athletes know, they, they know that when they toe the line on their big race day that they need to be healthy and lean. Um, I trust that most of them know how to, how to manage that the right, the right way. Right. And I would think for for a person using as much energy as an elite marathoner, I mean, I don't know, but I would assume that the bigger challenge is eating enough and not yeah. eating too much. But I don't know. Yeah. I, I, you know, the the um, the amount of research that's been done, um, I don't know if you know of the um, uh, Dr. Dan Benardot down at Georgia State University in Atlanta, but he's done a great deal of research on cortisol, you know, which is a stress hormone and um, athletes who have long periods where there are no calories being taken in, you know, um, cortisol will be released into the bloodstream at, at inordinately high rates. And cortisol is catabolic, not just to, it's catabolic to bone and smooth muscle tissue, which is so often why you see people, you've probably seen people who have had issues related to eating and they'll actually look, they'll be very thin, but they have no muscle tone. Uh, and cortisol is one of the main reasons for that. So not just the calories you take in, you're right. You need to eat. You almost can't eat enough if you're marathon prepping, but also frequency of eating. That's a big, big problem for endurance athletes should be eating frequently. So rather than the classic American diet of like very little for breakfast, a really big lunch, and then a massive dinner, right? That's the American way. Uh, is to eat more like five or six times during the day and have have smaller meals. Your your energy will be higher. Your metabolic rate will be higher, um, and you'll have um, uh, few, fewer issues, even related to things such as such as stress fractures. Okay, very cool. Um, I would like to go back to your idea of taking it back to basics in between yeah. marathon cycles because um, everybody knows you know COVID has kind of thrown our whole yeah. year off and who knows for some people when their next race is going to be um, but let's just assume you know fall 2021 yep 
um, there's going to be races out there for people, marathons. And, right. you know, we're recording this October 2020. So we got <laughs> one. Let's assume we have one year to get ready for a marathon. I like um, it. Okay. Let's just assume we've we've already figured out. We know what the we're doing the the zap eleven week cycle build up leading up to the marathon. But if if in that scenario, what do you think? What would the forty weeks building up to that look like? Right. Uh, you know, I I think this is the perfect opportunity for all of your listeners to work um, to to not only emphasize um, their strengths. Um, but also improve, improve uh, weaknesses. And um, I would say this late fall and into the winter, if you're looking at a, f- a fall 2021 marathon, that's some real serious long-term planning. Um, I would say you have the opportunity to do uh, a couple of complete cycles. So you could be working on base building right now and perhaps bumping your volume to places it hasn't been before within reason, of course, and with planned rest, of course, um, and then target some sort of time trial esque race, <clears throat> excuse me, that perhaps you and your training partners or your club teammates uh, put on, even if it's for yourselves. And, and we've seen this around the country right now that athletes are really adapting well. They're saying, "Look, there's no races I can really run with." With I guess there's a few small ones, but um, that you could say, "Look." springtime, I haven't really worked, I haven't really raced 5Ks and 10Ks or a couple of cross-country races in a long, long time. Here's your opportunity. Go run uh, 12 to 14 weeks of um, of base building mileage with a good long run and a fartlek uh, and some strides for economy to make sure that you don't lose touch with that in your base phase. Um, transition yourself into some faster fartleks and tempo runs and then Line up a few races for yourself. Pick two 5Ks, an 8K, and a 10K with a week's rest between each one in um, uh, April, May, and June. Uh, Go have fun with it. I mean, maybe even something as simple as I'm seeing athletes who have been training for 20 years who who haven't raced a mile since they were in college, and they'll say, well, I'm going to finish things off by going to my local track, and I'm going to go run a mile because I haven't done it since I was in high school or since I was in college. And having great success just off of strength-based um, aerobic volume, uh, and then count backwards from that from that Berlin Marathon or uh, <laughs> San Francisco Marathon or whatever fall race that you uh, decide, and get a get a good summer of of uh, marathon prep. And unless you live where you live, I, I'm telling you, people who live in South Carolina, I training for an early fall marathon uh, in summer in South Carolina, I sure. Uh, yeah. I think I'd probably go to the treadmill a lot. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of your favorite fall marathons that, that are pretty accessible to the, you know, that you don't have to fly to like overseas or anything? Well, uh, I'll I'll probably get smacked around by some race directors that I'm friends with, but uh, (laughs) I've, I've, I've got a couple that I just feel are for a variety of reasons. I think the most approachable, marathon um in terms of it's it's a little bit of a smaller setting um i i love the twin cities marathon uh minneapolis st paul uh in 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 october um the the color of the leaves is at peak and seven or eight years in 10 you've just get really good weather um and yeah i just i love that marathon um it, it, part of it is probably that my wife had her lifetime PR there when she finished second there in 2005. <laughs> uh, and we had an athlete, Tyler, win the national championship there one year too. But uh, I, I really like that race. And again, it's not quite as um, – I love New York, London, Berlin, Tokyo, all these races I've been to. But um, those are sort of the behemoths. You know, they're the uh, – they're, they're the, top stage at the music festival and twin cities is maybe the, in the backfield for, uh, for the warm up act, but it, it has all the positives of the big name marathon. And yet it's a little bit more like a hometown marathon. So that would be one for your, uh, okay. for your listeners that I like. If we're talking about, um, uh, a, a smaller, uh, marathon, you know, one that's just truly, um, uh, Again, just a touch smaller, the Hartford City Marathon in Connecticut is a phenomenal uh, October marathon. And then as far as the big ones are concerned, 
I love the history of Boston. Uh, we are there every year with with somebody from 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 Zap uh, running the marathon or the shorter race, the BAA 5K, the same weekend. And um, that city knows the marathon like no other city in the world. The the spectators are truly educated about the event and um, and its history, and that's rare. Yeah. All right. Great. Great advice. I'm taking notes here. Like I said, I'm I'm uh, planning a little bit for myself in the future, trying to get some. Uh, taking everybody's two cents here but um (laughs) well we've gotten through pretty much all my questions pretty well so thanks again for talking i'd like to wrap up by uh asking you about the trials back in february in atlanta um it seems like just looking at the results and hearing people speak about it afterwards it seems like you had some pretty extreme experiences like some people the hills and i don't really know how hilly it was i've I just know anecdotally it was, quote, hilly. But uh, how hard was the course? How did your athletes handle it, or what did they think about it? What was what were your, some of your big takeaways from the trials? Um, my takeaways, first and foremost, I thought that the Atlanta Track Club did a absolutely phenomenal job. I mean, the sheer number of qualifiers this time around, uh, I think they will be rethinking the women's standard for 2024. Um but to, to be able to manage personal fluids for that amount of people, they should be given 50 gold medals because the, in, in terms of uh, making that happen efficiently, I was floored that they offered uh, personal fluids to every athlete on the course. But anyway, um, besides that, it was a well-run race. Um, it By anyone's um, uh, assessment, it was a tough course. In terms of the amount of elevation um, change, um, it was the toughest Olympic marathon trials that we've seen men's or women's, um, that, that of all the courses that I've looked at. So very, uh, tough course. Having said that, um, people ran pretty fast and, um, uh, there definitely were some surprises, um, particular, particular on the women's side. I mean, you know, if you had told me that a woman, an American woman who's run 220 in Jordan Hesse, a woman who's run 221 in, uh, in, in, in Sarah Hall. Um, I mean, these are to have people like that, not make our team, right. Or Molly Huddle or Emily, Emily Sisson. I mean, these were the favorites, um, goes to show that, uh, the Hills were the equalizer. So they were real. Um, it probably would have looked different if it were run on a course like Chicago. Um, but, um, yeah, we saw both ends of the spectrum. You saw athletes who were able to yeah. manage the hills well and be patient and run well. You saw people who were a little bit more aggressive early who utterly imploded. It definitely took its victims. Um, but frankly, I even on a flat, fast course, the marathon is uh, on any given day, you tend to see people who everyone assumes is going to run well and doesn't, and then others who people think are dark horses who really have that, uh, that Molly Seidel type day, uh, and, uh, and do great things. So I, I don't know if I really gave you the, the, the right assessment, but, uh, it was great for some people and rough for others. Yeah. I, I think for me anyways, and maybe for a lot of people, the, that sort of seems to be the allure of the marathon is that kind of that <laughs> mystique or the unknown of like anything, you know, it's like a 5K, 10K, you kind of usually know what to expect with a marathon. It's just you feel kind of like you're stepping out on a limb and anything can happen. That seems that seems attractive in a way. Um, and, and if I can say one quick thing, Joe, in talking to coaches before the race and after, it did seem like the athletes who took the time to train more course specifically were mm-hmm. the ones who really excelled that day. Um and that is something that is a really important takeaway for listeners is if you're going to run a course like Boston, well, then you should practice doing some sustained downhill running because the first 15 miles of Boston is a lot of downhill. <laughs> if right. you're going to run New York, practice rolling hills over bridges, even if it means that you have to run some loop in your neighborhood in Atlanta that replicates the New York course. If you're going to run Chicago, you know, make your long runs on a pancake flat course because even that is uh, can beat up your legs differently to have no changes in how your muscles react. That one, that same firing pattern for three, four, five hours. Um, and it would seemed like it was the people who 
did a good job replicating the Atlantic course at home in training who did well. Right. Yeah, that's something to keep in mind for sure. Um, well, Pete, I'm going to uh, I'll I'll put up links to uh, your social media and um, and and Zap so people can know where to follow. Zap is really fun to follow on Instagram, by the way. You guys um, put out <laughs> a lot of good a lot of good content, and uh, I, I appreciate that you guys are so open and, and share training and what's going on with your athletes' lives and things. Um, and you guys are sponsored by On Running. Um, by the way, I was I was curious when um, it, when On Running um, joined your team. Uh, what what was the uh, conversation uh, switching from Zap Fitness to Endurance in the name? What was I was just yep. curious. What the I don't know if that was a big process or who what what was that all about? No, I, I, I'm we're, we're very transparent with everything we do here, so I'm glad you asked. Um, the woman who was the marketing director for On Running at the time, uh, Nicole Freetag, uh, your listeners might know her as Nicole Blood. Uh, she was a phenomenal high school and collegiate and post-collegiate runner uh, from upstate New York, and she ran at the University of Oregon. Um, she and the other sports marketing people said, "Look, you know, you've been you've been Zap." Um, fitness for 18 years and we love what you do with not just the pros but all the people who come through your camps and the retreats and all those things but on is really a performance-based brand and we would like to project something that is um, frankly says performance out loud on um, not that fitness is a bad thing but um, right. so they started throwing around some words like zap performance and zap racing and zap endurance was something that they suggested, not we, and we liked it and we were willing to adapt and rebrand and, um, you know, we got some new clothes. So that was cool. Uh, yeah, you're cool. You're the colors you guys wear is really cool. I like the uh, kind of deep sea green, uh, shirts and pants I see you guys wearing. Um, uh, but yeah, on is a huge, that brand just seems to be exploding. So that's really exciting. You guys are a part of that. Yeah. Just, uh, just 10 um, years old, the brand and the but yeah. you know, folks are making smart decisions. Yeah. Well, again, Pete, thanks so much for talking to me. I'm going to be looking forward to uh, keeping an eye out for uh, what you guys um, get on the calendar as races hopefully are are popping back up. But, yeah. um, again, I'll post links so people can uh, connect with you guys. But, again, thanks again, and um, best of luck training this fall. Joe, thanks. I, I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.